Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, if you got a Bible, go to John chapter 11. We got 44 verses to cover. It's going to take a long time. I hope you brought a snack. If you're low blood sugar, you get hangry. I hope you packed a snack. This could be a few hours. Cancel your lunch plans. Text your family. I've not disappeared. Mark's just still talking. This is going to take a while, but it's awesome. This is such a great part of God's word. I am so excited and you should be. And if you're not, it doesn't matter. I'll be excited either way. Okay. So if you got your Bible, go to John chapter 11 and the preacher usually gets up and asks, how are you doing? I'll tell you, you're doing awesome. This is a great day for you. Some of you are going to get saved. Some of you are going to get hope. Some of you get encouragement. And it starts in John chapter 11. Jesus' ministry at this point has been going for a few years and he is nearing his death and the story starts, hang in it with me, starts a little dark, a little discouraging. We started a funeral, but by the end we have a party. So we'll pick it up. First big idea, suffering and death comes for us all. Here's the story, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. How many of you today? You're ill, you're sick, you've got an injury, an ailment, chronic pain, suffering, you're battling cancer, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's someone you know and love, family, friend, coworker, neighbor. If you are not suffering, someone you know is suffering and you're walking with them. And as a result, you're participating in their suffering. There was a certain man who was ill. His name was Lazarus. He lived in a town called Bethany. One thing you'll learn if you are new to Christianity is that the Bible is historically accurate and factually true. It says that people lived and there were places and times and distances and the archeologists doing their homework repeatedly confirmed that the Bible is an accurate historical record. And I need you to know that because anytime I have an opportunity to grow your confidence in God's word, I wanna make the most of that opportunity. So it's telling us about people's times and places that are actual, historical and factual. In the village of Mary and her sister, Martha, what I need you to know here is that Jesus had healthy relationships and Jesus comes to have a relationship with you and I so that we might also experience and enjoy healthy relationships. This was, we could call it Jesus' friend group. These were people that he knew and loved and cared for. Lazarus, a brother, two sisters, Martha and Mary. When Jesus is traveling in their region, he stops at their home. He stays with them, he eats with them. They're like extended family. Uh, They love each other. And I need you to see, especially you men, particularly you single men, that Jesus is a single man who has warm, healthy relationships with single women. The Bible tells us that men should treat women like sisters, right? You can have a warm relationship with your sister, but not an inappropriate relationship. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus has. He has friends and he comes to help us have a friendship with him and to build our friendship with one another. So this is a group of friends that he knows and loves and the brother Lazarus, he is ill and in the process of dying. So a traumatic event is underway in this family, which provides the opportunity for Jesus' ministry. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. That's a bit of a a teaser for a story that is coming up uh, in the next few weeks in John's gospel as you read ahead. So the sisters sent to him, they send word to Jesus, right? They're in crisis, they're in panic. How many of you, you're sick, struggling, suffering, dying. Someone you know is suffering, sick, struggling, dying. You're like, who do we call for help? You've gone to the doctor, you've exhausted all of your opportunities. For some of you, you're living on the internet just trying to see, is there a hope? Is there a cure? Is there an answer? They've exhausted all that they have for resources and they're crying out, they're calling out to Jesus. And they call for him. They sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You're gonna see this refrain over and over that Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus is a man who has a healthy relationship with another man and everyone knows that they love each other. Some of you men, you're not emotionally healthy. You have two emotions, angry and asleep. We need to add to that spectrum for you, okay? Jesus has a healthy emotional life. He tells and shows people that he loves them. Some of you, your dad, he never told you he loved you. We need to break that curse in your family. Some of you say, my dad never showed he loved me. You need to break that curse in your family. Jesus is a man who shows and tells others that he loves them. 
And so they come to him and they say, we know you love Lazarus because you show and tell your love for him. He is ill, the one you love, he is unwell. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. In the midst of a crisis, in the midst of trauma, in the midst of tragedy, all we can see is that which is coming for destruction. We don't see the deliverance and the glory of God and the good for others on the other side. This is, this is living by faith. Sight says he is dying. Jesus says, trust me, God will be glorified. Good will come. I have a plan to work through this. Trust me until you see what I bring. And for those of you today that you're, you're needing a breakthrough, you're needing a deliverance, you're needing a healing, you're needing a provision, you're struggling, you're frustrated, you're, you're anxious, you're, your sleep is being taken because of the grief that you're experiencing or the anxiety that is impending. Jesus' words are for you as well. Yes, this is real, but so am I. And I have a plan to work through this so that you would see how great I am and how, what great I do in your life. You need to cling to that as a hope and a promise for your soul today. And he goes on, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Again, appropriate, healthy, loving relationship. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, careful Bible reading, he stayed two days in the place where he was. Jesus, Lazarus is dying. Okay, I'll see you in a couple of days. How many of you, if you called 911? He's dying. Okay, well, in a couple of days, we'll get back to you. We, we're closed on weekends. It's Friday. Someone will call you back on Monday. You're like, what the heck? How many of you have learned this, that it seems like God is late? And the truth is, he's always on time. I mean, how many of you have experienced, how many of you have told that, Lord, and it's an emergency? And he said, not for me. Like, well, Lord, it should be. Lazarus is dying. Jesus waits two days. Does Jesus not care? He loves him. Can Jesus not act? He can do something. How many of you in your life, you're like, Jesus, why didn't you come? Why didn't you act? Why didn't you show up? It raises all of these questions. He stayed two days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, now's the time. It just goes to show, you cannot be moved by need or opportunity, but by the will of God. Lazarus has a need. Jesus has an opportunity to meet it, but it's not the will of God for him to go for a few days. Jesus walks perfectly in the will of God. And sometimes you need to know that God's timing is different than our timing. So there's not only God's will, there's God's timing. Jesus knows not only the will of the Father, but the timing of the Father, and he walks in both. I want you to do the same. He says, let us go to Judea again. So they have to travel by foot. This is a significant inconvenience. The disciples said to him, Rabbi or teacher, the Jews, the religious leaders, your enemies, your critics, your opponents, uh, they're just seeking to stone you and you're going there again. Here's what they're saying. Uh, Jesus, we know Lazarus is dying, but if you go there, they'll probably kill you. And we're not sure that a dead Lazarus and a dead Jesus is a real step forward. If we have a dead Lazarus, let's not add to it a dead Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus risks his own life to come and seek and save. You need to know that Jesus is the one who comes to lay down his life to pursue you in your spiritual death. This is how Jesus always works. He does what is best for others at the sacrifice of his own safety and well-being. That's how great and good and glorious Jesus is. The story continues. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because of the light is not in him. Here's what Jesus is saying. In that day, when the sun went down, your work stopped and you went home. They didn't have electricity as we do. You work while well, it's light, you rest while well, it is day. What Jesus is saying is, this is the daytime of my ministry. There's still work to do. There are still things to do. And it is not yet time for me to stop, right? It is not yet twilight or night. It is daytime for me. What he's saying is, yes, Death is coming. Yes, night is coming, to use that analogy and metaphor. But as long as the light is shining, the Son of God needs to be working and the day will come where the sun sets on my life and ministry and I will go into the grave, but I will work until that day. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus 
Here's what I need you to know. Jesus likes to be friends with people. Jesus likes to be friends with you. Jesus wants to be friends with you. Jesus is highly relational, highly relational. He goes on, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go awaken him. Now, the Bible uses different language when different people die. If someone dies apart from faith in God, they're not a believer, it says that they die, they die. If someone dies in faith, in relationship, a believer in relationship with God, it says that they have fallen asleep. I had an older saint come up last Sunday and ask, why does the Bible use this language of asleep? It's because there is a difference between dying in relationship with God and dying without relationship with God. If you die and you don't belong to Jesus, if you die and you don't trust in Jesus, if you die and you are not in relationship with Jesus, you go to hell. He speaks of hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. It is eternal death. It is spiritual death. It is physical death. It is unending death. It is absolutely irrevocable death. Some of you would say, what are you trying to scare me? You should be scared. Hell is hot, forever is a long time, and your relationship with Jesus is the most important thing about you. Some of you would ask, what are you trying to convert me? 100%, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I want you to be on team Jesus, not team kindling, amen? That's what I want for you, okay? I want that for, my job is to be really clear, your job is to make a decision about Jesus. When the Bible talks about those who have fallen asleep, what it is saying is that for the believer, the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus and belongs to the Lord Jesus, their body goes into the grave and their soul goes to be with the Lord. This is why the apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it is as if their body is just sleeping, taking a nap. It lays there in its restful state until the soul re-enters the body and resurrects from the dead to walk into the kingdom of God, fully healed in the presence of King Jesus forever. Here's what I need you to know. It is not the worst thing to die. It is the worst thing to die without Jesus. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. What that means is if you are here and you are not a Christian, this life is as close as you will ever be to heaven. And if you are a Christian, this life is as close as you will ever be to hell. For the believer, this is as good, or excuse me, for the unbeliever, this is as good as it gets. For the believer, this is as bad as it will ever be, okay? So there is different language for different people who enter death in different states in relationship with Jesus. What he says is Lazarus, he's not dead, in that state whereby he is separated eternally from the grace and the love and the mercy of God. His body is asleep, but his soul is in the presence of God. He goes on, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. They're in another town. They don't know what is going on. Jesus says he's asleep. They think he's actually just maybe in a coma or passed out or, or, or battling an illness. They don't know that he's actually died. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. He's dead. How many of you have lost someone you really love? And you've just had to come to grips with that reality. They're dead. First person I lost was my grandpa George that I remember, he was 10, I was 10 years of age. I'll never forget, I was at Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts and I saw my mom and dad get out of the car and my mom was very distraught and I knew something was catastrophic. And she came up to me, she said, Marky, Grandpa George has died. It's the first time I he's gone. There's almost that disbelief, that shock, like, no, he can't be gone, I just saw him. He's got, he's, uh, sure, surely there's gotta be an answer, what can they, he's gone. It's over. There's nothing more that can be done. There's nothing more that can be done. Jesus tells them definitively and plainly, even though he is not present, he knows. Let me say this. Jesus may not be present on the earth, but he knows everything that you are enduring and suffering and feeling. Jesus sees and knows all. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe 
but let us go to him. Well, here's the point. Hey, Jesus, it's too late. He died. Why, why take a long journey on foot with opposition where you could be arrested or killed when it is too late? Here's what I need you to know. It's never too late for Jesus. Some of you say, but my hope is dead. It's not too late for Jesus. It's never too late for Jesus. And sometimes he waits until it is hopeless. And then when he shows up, he brings the hope. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, apparently he's got a twin brother, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. If you're gonna live, live for Jesus. If you're gonna die, die for Jesus. That's his bottom line. Well, they're gonna kill Christ. Well, let's go with him. Looks like we're gonna die as well. Those who believe in Jesus, they face death differently. That's why the Bible says that we do not grieve as ones who lack hope. For the believer, death is no longer to be feared because death is the result of sin. God is the living God. God is a good God. When God made this world, it was all good and everything was alive. We sin. As a result, things go bad. We bring death. There is no hope. Jesus comes. He brings good. He brings life. And Jesus enters into this situation. And let me tell you this, until Jesus shows up, nothing changes and no one is comforted and there is no hope for the future. And what is similar between them and you is this fact. Unless Jesus enters into your situation, there is no hope. And we find ourselves quite frankly in positions as they did where there is nothing we can do. How many of you are there today? There is, I, I, I've done everything I can do. I, I have... I've made every call I could make. I've spent every dollar I have. There is nothing I can do. Jesus needs to show up. Jesus needs to show up. The story continues and we see then how people process grief and people process suffering and death differently. Different people process suffering and death differently. So Lazarus has died. And now we are entering into this moment where people are processing their grief. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for... Four days, four days. Is he dead? He's very dead. It's gonna tell us in just a moment that there was an odor that comes from the body. The King James Bible literally says he stinketh. He stinketh. Somebody like, I married that guy. He stinketh, okay? Do you know what a decomposing body smells like? It's inexplicable. Um, Gracie and I, when we were dating, she had an uncle John who was like a grandfather, her, an older man. He had no biological children or grandchildren and he was an uncle and he loved Grace and he was older. And so she was like a granddaughter to him. And we loved uncle John, he was very good to us. Actually stayed with him the night before we were married. And uh, Grace and I would go visit him. And there was one day we showed up at his apartment and the door was just ajar and unlocked. And I said, okay, baby, I don't know if there's a break in or he's older, maybe he forgot, let me go in and investigate. I go in, there's Uncle John face down. I think it was in the bathroom. He'd been dead for a while. We found him, you could smell it. The worst I've ever smelled was after crisis hit Haiti, it was part of a medical missional relief team that hit the ground and we were one of the first planes to land. And, we brought medical supplies and food supplies and water and we got armed guard and packing a rifle and out in the middle of looting and rioting and trying to find churches where the people were hurting and suffering and literally trying to pull, pull dead bodies or, or living people that are crushed under rubble in their church and trying to comfort the pastors and leave medical supplies and food and water and it was apocalyptic. We were there for days. They would just stack the bodies up in the street and they would cook in the sun. I've never seen or smelled anything like it. And day after day, nobody came by to pick up the bodies. By the end, the odor was absolutely inexplicable and unendurable. Um, I remember taking an orange peel and literally just shoving it up my nose for a couple of days just to try and kill the smell because I was nauseous. That's where Lazarus is. This is where... This is where sin goes. Sin goes to death. And this is not how God made the world. 
This is not natural. This is not normal. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that this death process, this decay process, this decomposition process, it's an enemy that comes for us all. And eventually, because all have sinned, death comes and defeats all. He's been dead four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles, all true. And many of the Jews, the religious people, had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Friends, this is a funeral. Here is a family, and they're surrounded by their church family. Let me tell you, you need both. It's good to have family. I praise God for my family. You also need church family. You need church family. You're born into a family. You're born again into a spiritual family. This family is in crisis and trauma. There's been a death of a brother. And the church family comes to console and to comfort. I want to encourage you at the Trinity Church, um, as your pastor, I can tell you this is a very loving church family. I want to tell you that even though we're not even two years old, we have seen deaths. We have had funerals. We have seen moments of crisis and trauma and pain in people's lives. And what I am happy to report is I continually see is that the family of God surrounds, loves, comforts, encourages, and does a tremendous job of being the presence of Jesus in the midst of a crisis. That's part, that's not all, but that is part of what church family is to be and do. And as your pastor, I just want to say thank you for being a loving, healthy, relational empathetic, compassionate, present church family when crisis trauma comes into the lives of members of our church family. And this is what we're seeing here. The family is in trauma and they're surrounded by loving, supportive church family. Um, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. How many of you are like Martha? You're like, well, I need to go. We need to do, she's a doer. She can't sit down. She's always working. Okay. This is kind of what we know about Martha. So she goes out to meet him before Jesus even gets to the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if. How many of you, you've had a lot of these conversations with the Lord. Lord, if, and then fill in the blank. Lord, if you would have done this, then this would not have happened. If then, if you would have done this, then this would have not happened. Here's what I love about Martha. She brings her questions and her frustrations to the Lord. You know what? When lightning hits, you need a lightning rod to ground out the storm. His name is Jesus. You're frustrated, you're overwhelmed, you're confused. You know what? Bring it to Jesus. He'll ground out the storm. That's what Martha does. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. There's hope. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection of the last day. The Jewish people had a concept from the Old Testament of the resurrection of the dead. I'll revisit this at the end of the sermon, but as a bit of a a precursor, they, they did not have a concept of one person rising in the middle of history. All they had was a concept of all of God's children rising at the end of history. So she is echoing what is most commonly understood by God's people in that day, based on text of the Bible, like Daniel 12, 2, where it says that multitudes that sleep in the dust of the earth will arise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. The concept was at the end, everybody rises and comes before the judgment seat of God. There was no concept of one person rising before the end of time when all people rise. And that's what she's articulating. She says, Jesus, I know one day, way down the road, everyone will be raised from death. And then I'll see my brother again. I just miss him today. Jesus corrects this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. A lot of people say, I believe in heaven. Heaven is not a place, it is a person. His name is Jesus. You don't just die and go to a better place. You die to go be with a person named Jesus. And wherever Jesus is, that place is heaven because he takes care of all of his people on the other side of eternity forever. And Jesus makes her this great promise. I am the resurrection, I am the life. What this means, my friend, there is no resurrection and there is no life apart from Jesus. People don't just die and go to a better place. They go to stand before Jesus to receive an eternal sentencing of blessing or cursing, a punishment or pleasure. 
And ultimately she tells him, you could have spared my brother. And Jesus says, I'm not done yet. I am the resurrection and the life. He goes on, I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, and this is the good invitation. Whoever believes in Jesus, you can believe in Jesus. 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 Jesus is relational. He welcomes you all. He welcomes you all, whoever believes. You say, I'm a bad person. Perfect. That's the kind of person he's looking for. I'm a good person. No, that's how bad you are. You think you're good, but he'll take you too. That ultimately, whoever, and I would invite you to trust in Jesus, to belong to Jesus, to have a relationship with Jesus, one that never ends. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. The worst thing is not to die. It's to die without believing in Jesus. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here's his question to her. Here's his question to you. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that you have sinned against God? Do you believe that Jesus has entered into human history to live without sin, to die in your place for your sins and to rise as the resurrection and the life to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer the wrath of God. And that if you believe in him, though you die, you will live and you will live in his presence of goodness and glory forever. Do you believe this? Wow, if the dead in Christ rise first, it's the 11 o'clock. I'll tell you that. There should be a little more excitement. I'll tell you what, we live, my friends, in a world filled with bad news. This is good news. We live in a world that has no hope. This is the only hope. We live in a world that is getting darker and grosser and deadlier, and Jesus comes as the light of the world, and he alone is the resurrection and the life. Everybody needs Jesus. The answer to every question is Jesus. The longing of every heart is Jesus. The hope for every nation is Jesus. The relational pain that you are experiencing, the physical pain that you are experiencing, the temporal pain that you are experiencing, the only answer to all of that, the only solution for all of that, the only resolution for all of that, his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's what I'm talking about. Do you believe that she said to him, yes, Lord? Just so you know, that's always a good answer. Now, some people, they like to say no, Lord, which means they really don't believe that he's the Lord. How many of you, God's told you to do something, you're like, no, Lord. Those two words don't go together. If he's the Lord, the answer is yes. If the Lord tells you something and you really believe that Jesus is the Lord, the highest authority, the answer is yes. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That is the anointed, the chosen, the awaited one, the son of God, like father, like son, you are God in human flesh on the earth who is coming into the world. When he said this, she went and called her sister Mary. So Martha goes to Jesus, processes, goes to get her sister Mary. We need to meet with Jesus. Boy, I tell you, the most important thing you can do in a crisis is get to Jesus and bring others to Jesus. That's what she does. She went and called her sister Mary saying in private, they're gonna have a private conversation. This is like the family and the church family is grieving. The pastor shows up. Can we talk to you in private, process some things? It's an honor to be invited into those moments. The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus is coming, he wants to talk to me, okay. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The story continues. When the Jews, the believers who were with her in the house consoling her saw Martha rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. That's not what she is doing. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see the passion and the emotion in Mary? How many of you have had that moment where trauma hits and you can't even stand? You're laying in bed, you're sitting in a chair, you just fell to the ground. Just fell to the ground. You say, I can't even stand anymore. Lord, I just surrender I take a posture of worship. 
this is out of my hands, it's in your hands, there's nothing I can do, what, what are you going to do? She's a passionate woman. Some of you are passionate. She brings her passion to the feet of Jesus. That's what worshipers do. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come also weeping, everybody's crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit. He's profoundly emotional and empathetic and compassionate and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Where's Lazarus's body? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Now he's going to go to the body. Jesus, what? Shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Is Jesus a man's man? He's a, con he's a carpenter construction worker, probably has long hair, not short, probably has a beard, walks a lot, is in good shape, and cries. Weeping is one way of processing so that you can heal emotionally and be an emotionally healthy person moving forward. You can have the funeral, but unless you have the heart funeral, there's really no healing at the level of the soul. Some of you, there are things in your past that you need to grieve, you need to process, you need to mourn, you need to weep, you need to work it through so that you can heal up and move forward. Jesus is emotionally present. Jesus wept, so they said to him, see how he loved him. It's a good thing for all people, but especially the men of God, to say and show their love so that others know their love. But some of them said, listen to this. Isn't it amazing how some people who are critics will use even painful moments to continue their criticism? Could he not, who opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying? Yeah, Jesus does blindness, but not death. He's a failure. People process suffering and death differently. Let's look at the five people. There's Lazarus. He's sick. He's in the process of dying. His sisters say, we're going to go get Jesus. Jesus will come and fix it. We'll be back. Days pass. His health declines until finally Lazarus comes to the point where he acknowledges that he has come to the end. Are you ready for the day of death? Are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the Lord Jesus? Lazarus was. He then dies. Friends and family, they practice something that I will call the ministry of presence. It says that they were, quote, in the house and that they were consoling and that they were also weeping. There are times when people are hurting, when people are struggling, when people are suffering, and there's nothing you can do. Is there anything that this family or church family can do? Nothing. Lazarus is dead. Some of you, particularly you men, you're fixers, you're problem solvers. If there's something you can do, you're involved. If, there, if, if you can't fix it, you just don't engage, you're not involved. There is here the ministry of presence. Sometimes there's nothing to do. I can't do anything. And there's nothing to say. And sometimes we fill the void with lots of theological conjecture. Well, God is sovereign. He works out all things for good. And there's a resurrection of the dead. And they're like, he's dead. Can we just emotionally process this and then get to the hope? But right now, it feels like we have been shot in the soul. Ministry of presence. For those of you who are parents, you need to understand the ministry of presence. It's just coming home at the end of a long, hard day. It's sitting at the dinner table. It's when the kids are playing the sports and they look up in the stands, you're there. It's the ministry of presence. It's the ministry of presence. Um, I told Grace some years ago, when I have a hard day, I just need you around. Right? Her name is Grace, so you know she's going to be helpful, right? <laughs> if her name was Law, I don't know if it would go so well, you know? So her name is Grace. And she would say, well, what can I do? Nothing. What should I say? Nothing, just be here. 
Just, just being here with me is a ministry. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Just presence, because it's not good to be alone. Jesus understands the ministry of presence. That's why God comes to the earth. Jesus understands the ministry of presence. That's why he makes the long journey, endangering his own life to get to the home of Mary and Martha. He could have healed from a distance, but it's the ministry of presence. And this is why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And he says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And what he's promising there is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer so that we always enjoy the ministry of presence. You're never alone. These people understand the ministry of presence. Might you understand the ministry of presence? Well, what about the critics? The critics do not understand the difference between a question and an objection, or rather uh, a question and an accusation. Do you know the difference between a question and an accusation? A question for God is, Lord, I don't understand. Help my understanding or give me faith until I see you and I know in full because now I see in part and I know in part. Lord, I don't understand. A good question is one that the sisters are asking. Lord, we told you and you didn't come for a couple of days. We don't understand. I don't understand. Lord, I'm very confused. How many of you, you say, I have a lot of questions for the Lord. There's a difference between a question and an accusation. Mary and Martha, they bring their questions to the Lord. These other people, some of them, they bring accusations to the Lord, right? Uh, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? That's an accusation. What that is, is that saying, "Um, God, we're now rendering court and God, you will stand on trial and we will sit in the seat of judgment and we find you guilty of sinning against us. As a result, you need to explain yourself to us for your failure. That, my friends, is ungodly. And some of you will say, but I'm very emotional, I'm hurting, it's a hard time. I understand. It's fine to have a question. It is not fine to have an accusation of the Lord. A question will draw you near to him. An accusation will separate you from him. Um, Some of you, when you get emotional or trauma or trial strikes, you say horrible things to the Lord and God is big and good and he can absorb and endure that, but that is not good for your soul and for those who are eavesdropping or overhearing, it is not edifying to them. I'll give you an example. I learned this as a brand new believer. I was a college student, just met Christ. There was a gal in our church family. She was a widow, her husband had died. And um, I volunteered to go babysit. Well, she would go meet with a counselor just to spend some time with her kids, um, just to be present. And I'll never forget, there was one day, little kids, little ears surrounding mom, and she just started accusing God. I mean, it was, it was a hurting woman, so I wanna be compassionate toward it but her response was not helpful. She literally said, God, how could you murder my husband and leave me and the children without him? You have destroyed us. I thought you were good. I thought we could trust you. You have failed us. You murdered my husband. That is not a question. That's an accusation. I was a brand new believer. Just in my spirit, I thought, okay, she's hurting, but these children are hearing. She left, I sat down with the kids to process. I said, how are you kids doing? How's it going? I literally, I always get down at eye level with kids. I said, talk to me, how are you doing kids? And the oldest boy said, I'm really angry that God murdered my dad. No, son, your earthly father has died. Now more than ever, you need your heavenly father. He is a father to the fatherless. These critics, they use this opportunity to bring accusations rather than questions. Questions are trying to figure out what God is doing. Accusations is acting as if you are God and you know what should have happened. Some of you are bitter, 
angry, accusatory, self-righteous against God because you feel like he has sinned against you. You may be hurting, but that attitude is not helping. I don't mean to be cruel or mean or not compassionate or empathetic. But God is good and God is not evil and God is the author of life. And when God finished this world, everything was good and very good. And when he's done at the end, everything will be good and very good. In the middle, things are very bad. He is part of the solution. He, my friend, is not the problem. We live by faith until our faith becomes sight. This is the middle of the story where everyone is weeping and they're not yet rejoicing. And faith is trusting in the weeping until we experience the rejoicing. Mary and Martha process differently. They're sisters. They're different personalities. How many of you have a sibling and they're totally different than you? How many of you raised two kids? You're like, I, I'm not sure they're both mine. They're, they're so different. It's crazy. Mary and Martha are very, very, very different. Now, they both have experienced the same event and they are interpreting and processing their grief cycle differently. So here's what happens. Martha goes to Jesus, Mary stays home. Martha has to do a lot. Mary is more contemplative, less active. Martha right away needs to go talk to Jesus. Mary will get there to have that conversation eventually. Martha wants to be all by herself. She sneaks out and walks to Jesus. Mary's highly relational. She wants to hang out at home with the family and the church family. How many of you are more like Martha? You're more rational, more practical, and a doer. You're like, I just need to do something, even if it's wrong. I, I just can't sit here. I gotta go do something. How many of you are more like Mary? You're like, I'm gonna sit here, cry, sing some worship songs, pray, journal, paint, and eventually it'll figure itself out. They're both godly. They're both processing their grief. They're just doing so differently. You and I need to be very careful that if we go through some trauma, some suffering, some hardship, that we don't take our journey and turn it into a paint by numbers kit that everyone else needs to follow. Step one, step two, step three, okay? Different people process their grief differently. Now, as long as they're not being self-destructive, if someone is you know, self-medicating or acting out, like, I love you, you have pain, but adding more pain to that pain is not going to resolve the pain. Mary and Martha are different, they process different, but they both end up at Jesus, working it out in relationship with him. How about Jesus? There is very little work that's done on the emotional life of Jesus. I've got a book coming out in October and I'll give you a copy and one chapter is on the emotional life of Jesus. We see here a, a real clear picture and portrait of Jesus' emotional life. It says, quote, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That's emotion. Is Jesus emotional? Yeah. Some of you are emotional people. You need to know that our Savior's name is not Spock, right? That some people have this view of God. They're like, he's in total control and he doesn't feel anything. No, God is highly relational, highly emotional. His name is Jesus. He is troubled, he is burdened, he is bothered to the degree that it says that he wept. He wept. And Jesus showed his emotional life. It mentions a lot of Jesus' emotions in the New Testament. The most commonly referred to emotion is compassion. That's what we see here. A healthy emotional life begins and has as its resting position, love. Because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What Paul is articulating there is the emotional life of Jesus. If, if your emotional life starts at anger, you're unhealthy. If your emotional life starts at hurt or bitterness, you're unhealthy. If your emotional life starts at fear, you're unhealthy. A healthy emotional life begins, it has as its resting point, its stasis, love. And what we see here, Jesus loves Lazarus. They all say that. 
He loves Mary and Martha. He loves the extended family. He loves the church family. He loves God the Father. What is coming out of him is what's already in him, and that is love. That is love. Now, here, one of, one of the, how do I say this? One of the anointings on my life is to train men. One of the hardest things for a man to understand is emotional health. You can't have relational health unless you have emotional health. Emotionally healthy people have healthy relationships. True or false here, Jesus has some very healthy relationships. He does, because he's emotionally healthy. One of the ways that he comes to and sustains his emotional health is when it's time to grieve, he grieves. When it's time to cry, he cries. When it's time to express his affection for someone in an appropriate way, he does. Here's what I'm saying. There are many men who are forgiven of their sin, but they're not emotionally healthy. And as a result, those in their life, especially the women, have relational conflict. Jesus has healthy relationship with Mary and Martha, even in the midst of trauma and crisis, because he is emotionally healthy. So he is relationally helpful. Can you imagine if Jesus' resting emotion was anger and he just showed up and exploded? Can you imagine if he started with jaded bitterness and hurt? He doesn't bring that with him because his emotional life is guarded by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to guard your emotional life so that when you're present, even in a crisis or a trauma, you bring the presence of Jesus, which is the presence of love. Okay? One last question, then we'll look at the, the ending. A little bit of a spoiler alert for those of you that have read ahead. Does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Yes. You're like, oh, spoiler alert. I told you, okay? So Jesus shows up, is very emotional, and cries, knowing he's going to rise him from death. Why is Jesus crying about something that he knows he's going to fix? I watch ESPN classics, and when it's the fourth quarter and my team is losing, I don't cry if I know that ultimately they win. Jesus, everything to Jesus is an ESPN classic, by the way. He's like, I've already seen this. I know how this ends. Yet he's still emotional. Why is that? Because he's emotionally present in the moment. And in the moment, Lazarus is dead. Everyone is crying. Jesus is emotionally present and compassionate. And what he doesn't get is overly theological. He remains highly relational. Because sometimes what can happen, you show up at a funeral, everybody's crying, you're like, that's okay. The dead in Christ will rise. They'll live forever. They're in a better place. Ah, stop crying. It's all going to be better. And they're like, I miss them. I, I miss them. My dad died. And now he won't get to see his grandkids grow up. And I, I grieve that. My wife died, and tomorrow I'm going to have breakfast alone, and I can't hold her hand anymore when we walk around the grocery store. Our child was miscarried, and I never got to hold him and kiss him and toss him in the air and tuck him in at night. I know that God is good. I know that heaven is real. I know that Jesus saves. I just miss him. Is that okay? It's okay. It was okay for Jesus. It's okay to be emotionally present with the loss and have the hope that Jesus will fix the problem. So here's the end of the story. Then Jesus deeply moved again, highly passionate, highly relational, highly emotional, came to the tomb. This is awkward. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. This would be like in our day, Walking up to the cemetery, all right, dig up the, dig up, dig up the casket. Uh, uh, yes, Lord. Awkward. Okay, you know. Okay, open the casket. Uh, uh, awkward, amen? Awkward. Very awkward. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, <laughs> Martha's highly practical. How many of you ladies are like this? You're real practical. You're like, um, Jesus, I know you're a single guy, but this might stink. This could, this could be, we might need some Febreze, one of those evergreen air fresheners. Why don't you guys go get it out of your truck? We may need this. 
How many of you ladies are like this? Super practically, like when I die, put me in, you know, heels, not flats, because on the resurrection, I don't want to be in flats. That'd be so awkward, right? I married that girl. Okay, um, wedges, there are three kinds. There are flats, wedges, and heels, right? I married wedges, girl. Okay, uh, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. In the King James Bible, it literally says, he stinketh. He stinketh. There will be an odor. He's been dead four days. Don't you love Martha? Martha's like, hand sanitizer? How many of you are those people? You're like, ah, yeah, I'm a germaphobe. I don't do dead bodies, right? I don't do that. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, and he's gonna pray. Could Jesus have prayed silently? Sure. Why does he pray vocally? Because sometimes when we pray, it's not just for us, it's for those who are hearing. If somebody says, pray for me, don't say, okay, I will when I get home. Pray for them right there. Pray in front of people, pray in front of your kids, pray in front of your grandkids. Some of you say, well, God can hear me whether I say it or I think it. Right, God can hear, but others can't. And sometimes we pray out loud so that others will hear what a relationship with God sounds like. That's what Jesus is doing. Father, that's awesome. I thank you that you have heard me. It's always good when you pray to pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and to start with thankfulness. Father, I thank you. And then whatever your request is, that he would do something, start by thanking him for what he's already done. I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. What he's saying is, Father, I know we're always talking. I'm talking out loud right now so everybody else can hear how this relationship with you works because you're a great dad and we have a great crisis and we all need your help. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! One of my favorite old school preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said it's a good thing that he said his name, otherwise he would have emptied the whole cemetery. <laughs> I like that. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips. His face was wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus put new life in Lazarus, but he was still walking around in his old grave clothes. Some of you, I love you. Glad to be your pastor. Thanks for letting me teach the Bible. You need to know, it's time to take the grave clothes off. Lazarus was dead, but now he's alive. Some of you were dead, you meet Christ, now you're alive. It's time to take the grave clothes off. You'll, you're still wearing what you did or what they did. You're still willing, wearing an old identity, guilt, shame, condemnation. You know what I love about these people? Jesus doesn't tell Lazarus, take those grave clothes off. What he says is, go help him. This is where the family of God kicks in. You're, you're loved. God doesn't hate you. You're forgiven. God doesn't condemn you. You're not who you were. You're a new creation in Christ. You're not an enemy of God. You love Jesus and Jesus loves you. You're, you're a child of God. You don't have to live in fear. You can live in love. Let's get that off of you. Boy, that stinks. Aren't you tired of wearing that? We're all tired of smelling that. Let's work on this together. Jesus Christ puts new life in you and it's the family of God that helps take the grave clothes off so that you can walk in that new life that Jesus Christ has for you. Now, what we know here is that he was revived, not resurrected. Resurrection is unto eternal life, never die again. Does Lazarus eventually die? Yeah, otherwise he'd be here today to give a testimony that'd be awesome, but he eventually died again. And so what happened to Lazarus was that he was revived and one day he will be resurrected. But this was to give us a foreshadowing and a hope that ultimately Jesus conquers death because Jesus forgives sin through his death. Now, let me, let me say this. Jesus has just told us, I am the resurrection and the life. If I could just for a few moments, remove a major objection that some of you might have to the resurrection. How many of you have been told? Other religions, spiritualities, Greek mythology, all believed in resurrection of dead people. It all predates Christianity. All Jesus and Christianity did 
They took pre-existing superstition, myth, legend, fable, folklore, and they just co-opted it and recycled, repackaged, represented it around Jesus. How many of you heard that? That the resurrection is an idea that Christians stole. That's not true. Jesus is the only person who says anything like, I am the resurrection, I am the life. He's the only one who communicates that resurrection is possible. He is the only one who actually rises in full resurrection, glorious victory for all eternity over death. Let me deal with this fairly briefly. There was a a scholar, he studied at Cambridge. He's a well-noted New Testament scholar. His name is N.T. Wright. And he decided to look at all of the original sources of Greek mythology, superstition, religion, spirituality throughout all of history and antiquity. And his, 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 his thesis was, which came first? Jesus as the resurrection and the life or some concept of resurrection life that Jesus borrowed or stole? He, he produced a massive book on this. It's a significant historical work. I'll just give you a few quotes. He says, insofar as the ancient non-Jewish world had a Bible, its Old Testament was Homer. And insofar as Homer has anything to say about resurrection, he is quite blunt, it doesn't happen. He quotes an ancient Athenian dramatist. Once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Wright concludes, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed that the dead were non-existent outside of Judaism. No one believed in resurrection. Wright goes on and he summarizes and synthesizes ancient Greek thinking. You say, why does this matter? Because Greek thinking, led to the Roman Empire, which led to the Western world of which we are a historical part. That's why in philosophy, you will study Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epimenides, Alexander the Great. All of that is Greek thinking that has influenced the Western world. And he summarizes and synthesizes the essence of their teaching saying, they believe that we are in two parts, a material body and an immaterial soul. They believe that the soul predated the body and then entered into the body for a temporary season. And that upon death, the soul would leave the body and go into the perfect eternal state, freed from the prison shackles of the physical body. Their position was, and I summarize, the body is bad, the soul is good. So the goal is to get the soul out of the body. What that means is for the Greeks, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't even want a resurrection. You don't want the body back. The body is a problem. It is a prison for the soul. So Jesus stands and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who were Greek would have heard this and they would have responded saying, We have never heard this. And in fact, none of our teachers desires this. This is an undesired thing. This is an undesired thing. Wright concludes, nobody in the pagan world of Jesus' day and thereafter actually claimed that someone had been truly dead and then come to be truly and bodily alive once more. There's a story in Edwin Yamauchi he was a professor in Miami. He did a massive historical study on resurrection. And his findings, and I will summarize, are that there was not teaching or belief in the resurrection of the dead until after Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. To summarize Yamauchi, what he is saying is, Christians did not borrow this idea from pagans. Years later, pagans borrowed this idea from Jesus. Now in the Old Testament, the Jews did believe in the resurrection of the dead. We heard Martha articulate that, but their entire concept was that all of God's people rise at the end, not one of God's people rises in the middle. What does this mean? This means that apart from Jesus, there is no resurrection, there is no life. Furthermore, as we read the story, we find ourselves in the story of Lazarus in the middle of the story. In the middle of the story, it's death, it's devastation, it's destruction, 
It's questions, it's pain, it's suffering, it's loss, it's hurt, it's confusion, it's weeping, it's mourning. You need to know that this world is a funeral and it is painful and death comes for us all and suffering comes for us all and with it, it brings the greatest grief and the deepest questions. And there's no hope and there's no joy and there's no life until Jesus shows up. And what happens is my friends, we find ourselves in history and you find yourself in your life in the middle of the story before Jesus shows up. We're waiting for him to come again. And in that moment, what happens is those who are Christian, they trust in Jesus, but those who are critics, they accuse Jesus. The atheist will say, well, there is suffering and death, therefore there must be no God. The deist would say, we're suffering and dying. If there is a God, he lives far away. He is disinterested and uninvolved. He does not enter into this suffering and pain to suffer with us and to comfort us and to empathize with us. Those who hold to something called finite Godism would say, God is good and we are suffering and dying, but God is not powerful. He cannot overcome suffering and sickness and sin and destruction and devastation and the demonic and death. God wants to, but he lacks the how to because he is impotent. He is not, he is not all powerful. He is lost. The Eastern religions would come and say, well, God is good and he is evil, he is yin, he is yang, he is darkness, he is light. And all of our suffering and all of our dying is just a reflection of his dualism. That God is not light, he's also darkness. He's not good, he's also bad. He's, he's not life, he's also death. Our world and all of history and philosophy and spirituality, all of your life, all of your suffering, all of your pain, all of your struggles, it's in the middle of the story. It's where everyone is crying. Everything stinks. It's all the stench of death. And then Jesus shows up. He comforts and he encourages and he empathizes. And then he heals and then he forgives and then he saves and then he transforms. And I need you to know that right now, Jesus Christ is not dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He goes through death, he conquers death to forgive sin. He does that through his substitution on the cross. Three days later on a Sunday, that's why we're here on resurrection day. Jesus rises from death. For 40 days, he evidences his resurrection to crowds upwards of 500. They see his nail scarred hands. They are absolutely convinced that he has conquered death, not just revived, but resurrected never to die again. He ascends into heaven. I have good news that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well today. He alone, he forgives sin. He alone conquers death. He alone is the resurrection and the life. And the Lord Jesus one day is returning to this earth and he will put his feet on this planet. His nail scarred feet will return to this planet and he will call out to Lazarus. And right now, Lazarus's body lays in a grave in the Middle East and his soul is in the presence of the Lord. And one day for the last time, Lazarus will hear the voice of his dear Lord Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus will rise to eternal life. And my friend, you and I will have this great, glorious, grand family reunion in the presence of Jesus. Because for all of the children of God, you will hear him say your name. Tony, come forth. Andrew, come forth. Ashley, come forth. I'll hear the name of my kids. <laughs> and they're gonna be with Jesus forever. And we're gonna be with Jesus forever. Do you believe this? Then we've gotta celebrate this, amen? So what we're gonna do, we're gonna take communion. Remember in Jesus' body, broken, shed blood for our sins. The death comes for us all and death come for Jesus. And in the death of Jesus, death was defeated. And we're gonna sing and celebrate because we know the end. We weep in the middle, but we rejoice for the end where the rejoicing never ends. And if you're not a Christian, this is where you give yourself, your sin, your hope, your future to Jesus. And he is calling you today by name into relationship with him. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that I get to teach the Bible. I, 
Lord Jesus, I love my job. I love you. I love these people. I love your word. I love the truth. I love forgiveness of sin. I love eternal life. I love relationship. I love heaven. I love the resurrection. Lord Jesus, give these people faith. Give them hope. Give them joy. Give them love. Send the Spirit to impart to them your resurrection life so that as they weep and wander through this life, they would do so with a confidence knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, give us that eternal hope, that unshakable hope, that unbreakable hope, that eternal hope that only comes in the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.